If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one of a very special year in review wrap-up edition of the World According to Zig podcast. My name is John Ziegler, and yeah, there's no way we can possibly wrap up this whole year. <laughs> In just one hour or whatever this is going to be, but uh, we have not done an edition of the World According to Zig podcast since the beginning or near the beginning of the pandemic. I'll explain why that has been the case as we preview what's going to happen for me in 2021. I want to give you a heads up. As interesting as I hope this hour will be, you really want to check out hour number two of the podcast because... Hour number two is our annual Christmas interview with my daughter, Grace Ziegler. She's joined by her younger sister, Diana, for a second consecutive year, although this is mostly about Grace. This is about the fifth year we've done this, at least. Might even be the sixth year we've done this uh, with Grace Ziegler. It's by far the most interesting, as you might expect, since she's a year older, uh, but also rather controversial as she she expresses her unvarnished opinions about all sorts of things, including our reaction to the COVID uh, pandemic. So you will not want to miss... That And thanks to our producer, uh, Kevin Campbell, we hope to even have video of that uh, interview in hour number two, which will be posted on YouTube. So uh, lots to look forward to in hour number two. Hour number one, what I'm going to do here is, I mean, heck, I could do 20 hours reviewing this year, and and maybe someday I will. Uh, But I just wanted to finish this year... Uh, with a little bit of an update on the major stories that I have been involved with and and give you a sense of where we are on them and uh, wrap things up. We don't know what the, his- the history, or we know the history, we're not going to know the future of this particular podcast, but I will be starting a, a new podcast, the documentary podcast, involving the so-called Penn State Joe Paterno-Jerry Sandusky scandal, in 2021. Now, we do not know when that will happen. That is a big part of the reason why we stopped doing World According to Zig episodes, because during the pandemic, virtually every weekend, we were getting together. And when I say we, I mean a producer, a director, me, and a television personality newscaster here in Los Angeles, who was my co-host on this. We were basically taping four or five hours 
uh, every weekend, almost every weekend, uh, through most of 2020 for the purposes of creating an extraordinary, unprecedented, and, and I believe truly amazing documentary podcast telling the real story of that entire scandal. And it's, you know, if you have an open mind and you're, you're interested enough in the subject to, to give us your ear for as many hours as this is going to be, and I don't know how many hours it's going to end up being, but we, we were in the studio for at least 55, 60 hours uh, doing all of this, and it's very, very uh, heavily produced, and it's, I believe, unprecedented in the history of, of podcasting or maybe even broadcasting to try to, to do what we're doing from the contrarian perspective and it's really finally an opportunity for me to unleash all of the evidence and all the extraordinary experiences that I have gone through uh, over the last 10 years since that story broke almost 10 years since that story broke in a way that is credible informative compelling and really the bottom line is it's the greatest story never told that's in fact what i wanted to call the podcast that got vetoed it appears as if we're going to be calling it uh, with the benefit of hindsight which is not bad i, I would have preferred the greatest story never told um but because it is the greatest story never told and it will blow your mind it will absolutely blow your mind and uh, regardless of what your current beliefs are about that story and by the way you won't even have to be that interested in the story itself uh, this is a, a story about humanity that is just mind-blowing. It's so incredibly important. It, the real story is so much more interesting and so much more compelling than the mythology that the media created about it. And again, I, I urge you to keep up with me, um, probably on my Twitter page, which is at Zygmunt Freud, and on my Facebook page. Those are the easiest places to find what we're doing. We'll have a website uh, that's up uh, regarding that podcast when it comes out. When it will come out, I don't know. I'm guessing, it's a purely a guess, I'm guessing sometime maybe in February of 2021, somewhere in that range, but early part of 2021. And that's something that uh, we're very much looking forward to putting out there. I have, I am very pessimistic about the reaction to it because that's been the way that the whole thing has gone for the last almost decade. And that's generally my, my perspective on all this anyway. I've become a pessimist because I've been crapped on so much uh, in my life and career. But I know that from a content standpoint, you're never going to hear anything uh, remotely like it. And so uh, that's something to look forward to in 2021. And it's probably the biggest career news that I have to provide you uh, in this, our last episode of the World According to Zig podcast at, for at least uh, 2020. As far as the Penn State story in and of itself, the most recent developments are that Jerry Sandusky is still appealing. Uh, he's trying to get it into federal court where he would actually have a chance as opposed to state court, but there's all sorts of T's they have to cross and I's they got to dot. Graham Spanier, the former president of Penn State, just recently announced that he's going to continue to appeal uh, his conviction for a misdemeanor, which was a, a gross injustice to begin with, which had been thrown out by a federal court, has now been reinstituted because these judges are a bunch of frickin' morons. Uh, he's going to try to fight that. It does not look at all uh, optimistic on that front. And uh, in all likelihood, Graham Spanier is going to end up going to jail probably for a couple of months for something he had absolutely nothing to do with and which didn't even happen. 
I mean, that's that doesn't tell you everything you know about need to know about this case. I don't know what does. But literally a guy who had nothing to do with any of it, never had a conversation with any of the key people, never had a conversation with Jerry Sandusky or Mike McQuarrie, the key witness. Uh, he was, you know, he was only involved via email in the decision making process. Even if Jerry Sandusky was guilty as hell, which he's not, uh, Graham Spanier would be innocent. Uh, but here he is uh, now facing not only his career having been destroyed, his reputation being destroyed, but it looks like he's going to go to jail all because the the system uh, is so corrupt. It is so blinded by this mythology created by the news media. And this very good man is going to go to jail. Uh, and that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the massive injustices uh, of this case, which we will be documenting, as I said, in this podcast that will come out in 2021. Now, other stories that I have been following very, very closely, uh, many of you who listened to this podcast uh, back when we did this regularly were very interested in the whole Michael Jackson controversy in, the, in light of the Leaving Neverland pseudo-documentary by HBO. There have been some important updates on that. Uh, Most recently, in fact, just this week, the Michael Jackson estate uh, continues to win its case against HBO, or I guess I should say HBO loses in in their efforts to try to get the case thrown out. It appears as if the courts are holding that the original HBO Michael Jackson uh, concert uh, contract was, in fact, uh, very valid and that it prevented any sort of disparagement by HBO against Michael Jackson. And that because of that, uh, the real importance of this is not just that there's an action against HBO, but that in the process of this action, that there could be full disclosure about all that really happened behind the scenes in the making of leaving Neverland. And, um, and so if that happens, then, uh, you know, that could really blow apart the whole scam. Because, uh, I, you know, if, 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 for instance, the Jackson estate were to get uh, control of, you know, behind-the-scenes footage or, you know, uh, outtakes or how many times did uh, Wade Robson and James Safechuck have to repeat their answers to the same questions and uh, were there different versions of the story? I mean, if that can happen, then at that moment, uh, you, you might get to a situation where even uh, those people in the media who have blindly followed this bullcrap narrative might eventually have to go, wait a minute, this was a full-scale scam. Uh, and as far as the the lawsuits against the Jackson estate by Robson and Safechuck, the Safechuck version of that lawsuit has actually been thrown out. Now, he's going to keep trying to appeal, and it was done largely on legal technicalities as far as whether or not it was a valid lawsuit, but it's still good news. And it, it's expected, from my understanding, that the same thing's going to happen to Wade Robson's lawsuit against Michael Jackson's estate. Uh, and so, you know, Safe Chucks has been thrown out. Hopefully, uh, it'll never uh, see the light of day in a, in a courtroom. Although, I have to say, and I've even advised people of the estate to this effect, I would like there to be a trial. I want there to be a trial so that we can show the world what scam artists Wade Robson and James Safechuck are. So it's almost a no-lose as long as the the ensuing trial would be fair. I mean, either it's thrown out and it never gets anywhere and these scam artists never get any money out of it, or you go to trial and you you got a situation where they get exposed publicly 
for having stories that are obviously utter bullshit. Um, as far as my involvement, I haven't done as much this year on it, partially because I've been working on other projects. But I did have a very interesting meeting, which I tweeted about a couple of weeks ago, uh, with Michael Jackson's former uh, photographer, a guy by the name of Hamid Moshelli, who uh, is a really interesting guy, very nice guy. For many years, he was Michael Jackson's personal photographer up until the trial era, basically, from the, I guess it was the mid-90s till about 2003, 2004, although he was directly involved in the trial in many different ways. And he has hundreds of hours of uh, video that he took from behind the scenes with Michael Jackson, and by the way, uh, with some of the accusers as well, uh, some interesting stuff on that front. He also has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of maybe thousands of photographs that he took exclusively. Uh, he's looking to, to put out a, a really first-class coffee book, uh, which I've seen a demo for, which I can't believe he hasn't put out already because it would sell uh, many, many copies. It's spectacularly done. Uh, but more importantly, from my perspective, the reason why we met is that he um, is looking for a, dec- a director for his documentary film that he wants to do based upon all this footage that is most of which has never seen the light of day. And I have a very good friend who's a, a filmmaker who he's been speaking with and they wanted to meet with me. And so the three of us got together for a couple of hours and exchanged ideas. And I tried to help him with the focus of this documentary that he wants to make and you know what what might be some of the best, best paths to take, some of the not so good paths to take. I don't know whether or not I would be, I wouldn't be directing it. I I might be interviewed for it. Who knows? I would certainly be happy to advise him on it, but really interesting guy, good guy, obviously totally convinced Michael Jackson is a hundred percent innocent. He knew the accusers. He, he, he would, he did the, uh, a video of the Martin, the infamous Martin Bashir interview with Michael Jackson as uh, when a very smart idea, which was protection for Michael Jackson. He has the outtakes from that showing uh, how manipulative Bashir was and what a scam uh, Bashir was pulling on Michael Jackson. Uh, he uh, did an interview with the entire family of the first accuser and the first first accuser, which ended up being part of the the the, the uh, trial against Michael Jackson and was key evidence for the defense. He was actually even arrested. They tried to bring him in as part of a conspiracy to conceal all this, which was just absurd. And he knew it was absurd from the beginning. So uh, Hamid is a a very interesting guy. And I I hope uh, that we'll hear more from him in the future when I don't know. But boy, he does have the goods. And that was a, a very, very interesting meeting. And I'm happy to help him in any way possible. Somewhat related, obviously, it's the same basic subject of alleged sex abuse. I I told you before we stopped doing the World According to Zig podcast that uh, I was very involved in Matt Lauer's rebuttal to the allegations that uh, he raped a former NBC employee, the same employee uh, with whom he did have consensual consensual sex, which caused him to lose his job as the host of the NBC Today show back in 2017. Uh, This has been a very strange chapter of my life. I've had a lot of strange chapters, but this one is about as odd as it gets because 
the reality is that Matt Lauer and I have been uh, combatants. Uh, I was on the Today Show in 2009, and he and I sparred over uh, Sarah Palin in my newsmaking interview with Sarah Palin, and I thought that did not go uh, nearly as well as I had hoped that it would. Uh, we, we battled again uh, after my interview with Jerry Sandusky in 2013. Uh, and then in 2014, I brought him an interview with Dottie Sandusky, which I participated in and got him to come to State College to do an hour-long interview with, with Dottie and me sitting next to Dottie. And, you know, I've never really felt like any of my experiences with, with Matt or the Today Show were particularly good. Uh, and, and at times I felt like they, they did me wrong. But when he, um, you know, had his allegations, which when they turned from consensual sex to rape, uh, Matt called me after I did an article that was in the New York Post raising uh, suspicions and concerns about these allegations because, frankly, they didn't make any sense. And, and, uh, and, and heck, uh, you know, we, for one thing, uh, this woman acknowledges that she continued dating Matt for ex- a fairly extended period of time, well after the alleged rape at the, the Sochi Olympics in 2014. And I've gotten now to know Matt exceedingly well. I mean, I now consider Matt Lauer, this is so strange, probably to be one of my best friends. Uh, and, you know, I, I make no bones about the fact that I uh, advised him extensively on how he was going to respond to this. Now, before we stop the podcast, uh, I told you to expect that his response was going to come. But, of course, the pandemic changed everything. I mean, one thing after another kept happening where this was getting delayed and delayed. And we knew once the pandemic hit that there was no way to get this out in a in a productive fashion. Now, there did end up being a small window uh, when things calmed down in the early summer uh, after the initial first wave of the virus where Matt eventually did get most of his story out uh, via Mediate, which has been my outlet where I'm a senior columnist and have been for the last several years. Obviously, that was not a coincidence that he ended up using Mediate. Now, Dan Abrams, who owns and runs a Mediate from ABC News, uh, he and Dan have a good relationship, and that obviously helped uh, with the process. But uh, I, I don't even know uh, how many hours uh, Matt and I spent on the phone. I mean, if you may recall, I flew across the country after the allegations first happened in Ronan Farrow's book uh, that uh, to meet with Matt for about six hours. After that, we I don't know, wouldn't surprise me if we'd been 100 hours on the phone. Uh, and as you know, for me, uh, it wasn't 100 hours of, boy, Matt, you're awesome. Uh, it was uh, very, very arduous uh, from both of our perspectives. And we've gotten to know each other exceedingly well. And I hope Matt is happy with what he put out there on Mediate. You can obviously easily find it by just Googling Matt Lauer Mediate. Uh, I I even facilitated, just to show you the behind the scenes of all this, and this is another great example of where uh, if if there was a, a, a proper way to describe my career, at least in its later stages, it's pulling off miracles to no benefit, at least to myself. Uh, What I pulled off here was really remarkable. The reason why Matt got a window to finally tell his side of the story was that the New York Times did 
an article that was slightly cynical, at least certainly by the normal standards of the mainstream news media, towards Ronan Farrow. It was done by a guy by the name of Ben Smith. And Ben Smith basically wrote, hey, is Ronan Farrow too good to be true? And the reason why that happened when it did, and the reason why it mentioned Matt Lauer, is because I had gotten wind that Ben Smith was doing this. I contacted Ben Smith. I put Ben Smith and Matt Lauer together. I said, Matt's version of his story uh, regarding Ronan Farrow has got to be in your article. It was, and then that provided the nexus and the window, if you will, once the New York Times raises doubt about Ronan Farrow, two days later, Matt Lauer finally came out with his version of the story saying, yes, Ronan Farrow is too good to be true. That was the hook. You always need a hook in the news media. There needs to be a reason why you're doing this story now. And since there had been so much time removed from when the allegation first took place in Ronan Farrow's book, that and, and we're in the middle of a pandemic, that became very, very difficult to do. And so I did all of that. I orchestrated the whole damn thing. And how did it help me? Not at all. In fact, uh, not only did I not get paid, I never even got paid my, ex- just to show you how ridiculous this business is, I never even got paid my expenses for the original trip to New York to see Matt Lauer, which I was told that I would if it ended up turning into something on the record. So I paid for that myself. I spend, like I said, about 100 hours working with Matt on, on his rebuttal. I write my own column that's ready to go with Matt's rebuttal for Mediate to give the behind the scenes, and Mediate doesn't even publish it immediately because they don't want to trample over Matt's piece and because they gave me some grief about editing at the last minute, even though I had sent it to them days beforehand in anticipation for this. So then I get no traction with my role in this, so I don't get my expenses. I spend a ridiculous amount of time working on this, uh, I, I get no traction with my uh, part of this, and um, and and I the only good part of it is I think Matt was happy uh, that he finally got his version of the story told. And I, I got to tell you, what's even on Mediate is really a small portion of the truth. I mean that's always the case, but in this particular situation it's really the case i am as positive that matt lauer never raped that nbc employee as i am uh, that michael jackson uh, is not a a child was not a child molester that jerry sandusky is not a child molester uh, that this was a railroad job and you know matt is very flawed we're all flawed uh but he i am actually i actually really respect matt for how he has handled the destruction of his career. Because I've seen other people at his level get personally destroyed and be unable to even function once their careers are taken away from them. And that has not happened with Matt. I mean, and maybe this is why we're friends. I think Matt feels better about himself because he was able to tell his story in a respectful fashion, largely because I got him to do so. I mean, I had to whip his ass to get him to do it because he did not want to do it. Uh, I mean, these things don't happen by accident, folks. Uh, you know, you're going to hear in hour number two 
my daughter, maybe the highlight for me of that interview is where she says, if you see a problem, don't just sit around and don't do something. Do something about it because if you don't do something about it, nothing's going to happen. Well, that's kind of my philosophy. When I see a problem and I'm the only one that can fix it, I jump in and I fix it or try to do it, oftentimes to my own detriment. And that's kind of what happened with Matt Lauer. Now, Matt and I have talked about, and boy, I would love to do this. I would love to do, because I, I actually think that the John Ziegler, Matt Lauer podcast slash interview, whatever you want to call it, would be the greatest piece of broadcasting uh, in history. I mean, because we know each other that well, we uh, have that kind of rapport where we would just let it all out. I mean, if that ever happened, where the, the, the John Ziegler, Matt Lauer, just let it all out podcast ever actually happened, I, I don't know how popular it would be. Probably would be pretty damn popular, uh, but it would be uh, phenomenal. Matt has, in principle, agreed to do that. Unfortunately, because my life is my life, uh, uh, we, we had a huge break. That's turned into not that much of a break at all. His son goes to USC here in Los Angeles, except there is no USC because of the pandemic. So he came out here one time to visit his son, uh, which we got together and, and had breakfast. Um, uh, but he's he's probably not coming back again for quite a while because USC is closed. And so the op- the natural opportunity that would occur, because Matt would have a reason to come to Los Angeles, has been at least stunted, uh, and maybe even worse than that, depending on what happens with the pandemic uh, moving forward. So I don't know whether or not that's ever going to happen. Matt has, has made that pledge. I'm going to hold him to it. My guess is we'll probably do something eventually. I don't know. I, I mean... Who knows? Maybe it'll just even be for our own purposes, uh, almost like a therapy session, because uh, that's kind of what, it, what it's been like for both of us uh, over uh, the last year or so that we've gotten to know each other again you know, on a much different level than we did when we were battling during my uh, my three Today Show interviews. But that's the Matt Lauer uh, situation. So yeah, I've updated you on, on Penn State, uh, on Michael Jackson, uh, and on Matt Lauer. Obviously, the the big story of this year, of this decade, of this century, uh, maybe millennium, has been the COVID pandemic. And uh, for most people, obviously, this has been a very, very, very difficult year. For me, it's been difficult, um, maybe for slightly different reasons. Uh, and uh, an hour number two will tell you a lot about that. And I could talk for many, many hours about our reaction to the pandemic and why I think it's the dumbest thing that has ever fucking happened in the history of, of modern man. Um, I'm not going to do that today. Uh, maybe we'll do that at a different time, but I do want to give you just a very quick summary of my experience with the pandemic and my views of it and how it's shifted a little bit. Now I'll be the first to acknowledge that when we started doing episodes on the pandemic of the world during the world, according to Zig podcast, I, like a lot of people, was wrong about what the ultimate death numbers would be. I never anticipated we would be heading towards 400,000 deaths uh, by the end of the year. Now, we're not going to get to 400,000 deaths in America by the end of the year, but you know we're well over 300,000, and it sure looks like eventually we will probably get to 400,000 unless this vaccine really pulls miracles in a, in a very, very quick fashion. Um, however, in my defense— 
I never anticipated we were going to count the numbers the way that we are doing. I never anticipated that for for at least at least 50% of those deaths we're just counting people who have died. That's all we're doing. That's all we're doing is counting people who have died. Now that doesn't mean that it's not real. It doesn't mean it's not very significant. Oh no, I I am fully aware that the coronavirus is real and significant. But how did we jump, and this is, I'll probably be asking myself this question until the day I die. How did we jump in basically a couple days with no vote, not even a public debate, with very few people even making these decisions? How did we go from something that, uh-oh, this is going to suck, to, all right, this is unprecedented, it's an emergency, not just for the next few weeks, but for at least a year, and we're going to fundamentally alter our entire way of life. We're going to destroy Western civilization. We're going to change our form of government all in what has turned out to be a foolhardy and failed attempt to try to mitigate something that was always going to be bad, that we have very little control over, that we have not, I believe, mitigated hardly at all, and where we have created massive massive unprecedented collateral damage the likes of which we have no idea we have no i'm not just talking about the short-term collateral damage that this year has sucked i'm not just talking about the fact that lots of people have lost their jobs in the short run that you know uh, you know my daughter's all upset that disneyland is closed uh sports have sucked this year uh, no no that that is that is the tip of the iceberg in my view in comparison to what we have wrought here. We have wrought ourselves an impact from this that is going to continue forever. Forever. And that's under the best of circumstances. And we have done it with no benefit. No benefit. I mean, that's the part of this that is so infuriating. And the worst part of that is that so much of what we have done has focused on punishing our children, punishing our children. I thought we lived in a society where uh, it was, you know, kids are everything. Kids come first. It's all about the kids, right? And I was even a little uncomfortable about that, even though I have two young daughters. All of a sudden, that got completely thrown out the window, and now it's perfectly okay to abuse the crap out of kids. Blatant abuse. Blatant abuse of children. That's what has happened here. We've taken an entire generation of kids and we've taken them out of school for a year? For a year! Not just the educational implications of that, the the cultural implications, the developmental implications. What about special ed kids, by the way? You don't hear anything in the media about what's happened to special ed kids. You don't hear anything in the media about kids that are getting the crap beat out of them at home. And no one knows about it because there's no way to find out about it. That's part of what schooling does is to protect kids from being abused at home. And now, by the way, you got parents at home who have lost their jobs, they're doing drugs, they're doing alcohol, and they got their kids running around all the time. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The horror that we have wrought, all because we want to pretend that we can control a virus that, even under the worst interpretation of the statistics, is still within the realm of a bad flu. Now, people say, oh, no, John, no, John, John, the flu doesn't kill that many people. Well, hold on a second. 
there's the, the, the fundamental mathematical misunderstanding of this whole thing is that you know, even if you put aside at least half these deaths have nothing to do with COVID. They have to do with being old. They have to do with being 85 and 90 years old and living in a nursing home, and you're going to die. That's what you go there for. So in my view, half of these deaths are not even directly involved COVID. But even if I accept that all of them are, here's the fundamental mathematical problem. And I've even had this happen with my editors at Mediate. They can't understand this. And I see this constantly. Oh, my gosh. 300,000 deaths. This, if you put this in war terms, this is you know like the worst thing that's ever happened, even though the average age of death is 80. Hold on a second. When an entire population is vulnerable to an impact, all right, as this one obviously is, our entire population, 330 million people in the United States, is vulnerable to this virus. The only logical way to interpret the numbers is not via raw death numbers. It's by percentage of population. Percentage of population. And when you take the percentage of population that has died either with or of the coronavirus in 2020, it is effectively the same tiny number as die every year of the flu. You have to get to the third or fourth decimal point before that number dramatically changes. It's effectively the same fucking number as a percentage of the population. But we are so fucking stupid. We, are, we so don't understand what 330 million means. 330 million. Do you, under, do you not know, I'm sure you don't, that now that we have uh, well over 16 million people who have tested positive for the coronavirus, right? We have a pool of 16 million people in this country who have tested positive and not died yet of the coronavirus. Many, many more people have gotten it than that, but these are the people that have tested positive. I've done the stats. If you, if, if you presume that those 16 million people are of average age, which they probably aren't, they're probably older, but I'm just, I'm going to give every benefit of the doubt here. If you just take those people, those 16 million people, of average age, based upon the chances of dying every single day. Because remember, every single day, we have thousands of people die in this country. Thousands, over 7,000 people die in this country every single day. If you take a pool of those 16 million, every single day, at least 400 are going to die for all sorts of reasons, having absolutely nothing to do with COVID. So right there, right off the bat, that's not even in the, you know, some of them are nursing homes, but, but that is, doesn't even come into uh, to the, the, to the, the issue of the fact that half of these deaths are already suspect because of the age and nursing home situation. But at least four to 500 of them now, Every single day can be counted as COVID deaths because they got a positive COVID test and they died. And so that's a death with COVID. Again, I'm not trying to say this isn't real. I'm trying to give some damn perspective to this. But the most important part of this is what benefit have we done? What benefit have we, in, have, have we created here? The most recent wave is blown apart any idea that these lockdowns actually work the cases are off the charts the deaths have increased the flu has disappeared which is amazing but 
But the reality is there's no evidence we have benefited ourselves at all, at all. And we have destroyed everything. And, and I'm particularly angry about it because what should have been one of the best years of my kids' lives, they might, might, you know, you only get one year where your older daughter is eight and still believes in Santa Claus and everything else, and her younger sister's three and is learning about everything. You get one year like that, and it got fucking ruined because of bullshit that had nothing to do with them for something they weren't vulnerable to. But that's just that's just the here and now. That's just that just fuels my anger now. We changed our system of fucking government. We turned into a fucking dictatorship in California and and elsewhere around this country. We were a country based on freedom and liberty. That was everything. That was who we are. People say all the time, but John, the rest of the world did the same thing. Fuck you. Fuck you with the rest of the world. We were the United States of America. We, that's our brand. Freedom and liberty. And now, in a foolhardy attempt to try to control a virus we can't control, we're going to throw that all away for fucking ever? And by the way, it's for fucking ever. It's for fucking ever. It's gone now, folks. They might not tell you that, but remember when they told you it was two weeks to flatten the curve? And what bullshit that was? It's the same thing with our freedoms. And masks are a perfect symbolic example of that. And I love it. I love it when people tell me, but John, you went away along with seatbelts and that, you know, what was wrong with seatbelts? Well, first of all, it's not analogous for a hundred different reasons, but thank you very much for proving to me masks are never going away. Just like seatbelts are never going away. So masks are here forever now. And I have a completely different narrative to how we got here, which I'll get into some other day and actually make a hell of a documentary. It's, it's very similar, by the way, to the panic that, in, that embroiled the whole Penn State Paterno-Sandusky case. Very, very similar dynamic. I've even had people proactively come to me and say, John, this COVID thing is exactly like the Penn State story. I said, you're telling me. It's, exact, it's exactly the same thing because once there's a panic and people in charge get invested in a narrative, look the fuck out. It's over because now that's going to be the truth. That narrative is going to be the truth regardless. They, they will make it the truth. They'll do whatever that takes with regard to the data. They'll do, I mean, now, heck, even with the vaccine, they don't even want to give up their power when, when the, the vaccine's not even good enough. We have to eradicate this thing are completely off the planet, which is impossible for a virus of this type. These people are never going to give up their power, especially not here in California, especially not Gavin Newsom. And so uh, this has been incredibly aggravating. Watching what it's done to my kids, watching what it's done to other kids for no reason when they have no real vulnerability to this, seeing what we're doing to the last... I mean, my God, all these people that have died... The greatest strategy of all that is not only did they die with or of coronavirus, we made the last year of their lives suck as much as it possibly could. Great job, assholes. Great job. I mean, we've done nothing. We've benefited nothing from this. Nothing. And now we have created the standard, the new rule that somehow the government has that kind of authority over our lives. The government has that kind of authority over our lives. And the burden of proof is now on us to prove why we should be able to go to a fucking restaurant and eat outside 
when there's no evidence whatsoever that has anything to do with spreading the virus? You've got to be fucking kidding me. But one of the reasons I'm so pessimistic is that we've now accepted the insane as normal. We're, we're actually having a conversation about whether or not you should be able to allowed to eat outside. That's an actual, and we're losing that debate. I mean, some judges here in California and one in San Diego said, now actually you can open up. I mean, that now takes a fucking judge to tell you that you're allowed to eat at a restaurant outside. This, I mean, that, that would be irrational if 5% of the population was dying from this thing. But we're not even close to that. It's not even remotely even that, that ballpark. It's a really bad flu without a vaccine. And I'll tell you, this vaccine thing, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not going to take it unless I'm absolutely required to. My wife's not going to do so unless she's required to. God knows we're not going to let our kids get it unless 100% they're required to. But this whole vaccine thing is the last hope for America to get any sense of normalcy. If they're able, and when I say they're the elites, are able to say, you know what, this vaccine is good, but it's not good enough for us to go back to normal, it's over. Stick a fucking fork in us. There's no going back. There may already not be any going back. But if we accept that kind of bullshit, we'll accept anything. And that's been maybe one of the most depressing parts of this whole deal. I knew we were a bunch of morons in this country and had lost our balls long ago. But I had no idea we were this dumb and this gutless and this ballless and this willing to go along with bullshit government dictatorship. I, I thought that America was at least slightly different. But it's clearly not. And now they know it. Now they know it, especially here in California. Now they know it. They can do whatever the fuck they want. The media will go along with it as long as it's about saving one life. Saving one life? What about the people that kill themselves? What about the people that die of drug overdoses? What about the child abuse? What about the economic loss, which inevitably causes death? I mean, this whole thing has been the dumbest thing of all time even my eight-year-old daughter knows it and she figured it out on her own as you'll hear in hour number two uh not just from you know being told by daddy because frankly she doesn't believe anything daddy tells her so uh uh i I am just so despondent i mean if you've been a fan of this podcast you know that we, we often do interviews with congressman john yarmouth democrat head of the budget committee who's been one of my best friends for the last 15 16 years i haven't even spoken to him in five or six months i can't do it because i know if we do it's going to be a massive blow up because i now view his party as the party of fascism and child abuse and he's a leader in the fascism and child abuse party and i didn't vote for trump i didn't vote for biden but I will never fucking vote for another. I will never, ever support a Democrat in any fucking way possible after what they did here because not one of them. You know, I, I took a, a big risk and suffered greatly because as a Republican, I stood up against Donald Trump. And some others did too. Now, most of them turned out to be fucking frauds. Uh, uh, the, you know, the so-called uh, Lincoln Club or whatever the hell, the, the, the Lincoln Republicans who basically are a minstrel show for, for liberals so they can get on MSNBC and CNN. I never did any of that bullshit. But, um, but at least some of us Republicans stood up against Trump. Not one fucking Democrat in the entire country, not one liberal commentator in the entire fucking country has stood up against this COVID fascism. 
and this insanity, all because they're afraid. They're terrified. They're terrified uh, of being seen as not good people and being on the side of death. And, you know, that's where Trump comes in. If Trump wasn't president, none of this happens. And if Trump was not running for re-election this year, none of this happens. If Hillary's running for re-election this year, none of this happens the way that it did. Yes, the pandemic is real. Yes, there's restrictions. But there's, the whole narrative is different. The whole reaction to it is different. We're not wearing masks. I can guarantee you that. This is all starts because of Trump. And, you know, I've, I've, I've documented a lot of that on my individual one podcast, which, by the way, will continue on for uh, another few weeks through the inauguration. I hope you're listening to the, the individual one podcast. I don't know what's going to happen uh, with, with me broadcasting uh, my career after the inauguration when we end the individual one podcast. I don't know whether or not we're going to be able to continue the World According to Zig podcast. We very well may not be able to, at least in the short run. I do know that we will be doing this uh, with benefit of hindsight podcast sometime in early 2021. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I hope that you are as well. Uh, I don't know, even know whether I'm going to be able to continue writing at Mediate because this COVID thing. And I, one of the things I wrote early on in the pandemic was that the reaction to the pandemic was going to cause a civil war in this country, maybe not a literal civil war, but at least a figurative one. Uh, where now we're living in two different nations where we can't even talk to each other. We can't even understand each other. And I've experienced that in my own life. John Yarmouth and I, great example. I mean, my gosh, we've survived everything. And now we can't, I'm afraid to have a conversation because I know it's going to go that badly. And he and I are the old, I mean, people have looked at John and me as the, the, this great example of two people that don't agree on anything. They can talk about politics in a, in a friendly and productive fashion. We cannot do it on COVID. And the same things happened with me at Mediate. I mean, Mediate's a New York mainstream, mostly liberal outlet. I'm, I'm, it's almost impossible for me now to function there. Not because I dislike them, just because from an editing standpoint, we're living in two totally different worlds about the reaction of the pandemic. So much so that I wrote a column that I decided to pull from media. I didn't want to go through the editing process and I gave it to Glenn Beck. I said, Glenn, can you post this? And Glenn did. He put it at glennbeck.com. I went on Glenn's show. It did very, very well at glennbeck.com. Um, you know, I don't, I'd love to go work for the blaze, but I don't know if that's going to be possible because of my past uh, opposition to Donald Trump. Who knows, you know, now that Trump's not going to be president anymore, uh, you know, who knows what will happen? I don't know. Uh, but there's a lot of question marks heading into 2021, but I wanted to at least do this one last episode of the World According to Zig podcast uh, to wrap things up, to review some of the things that had happened during our hiatus as we taped the other podcast. And obviously, as the pandemic changed everything. But I do want to thank everyone who's listened to this podcast for the last several years uh, and to Kevin Campbell, who's helped produce it. Uh, who knows what the future holds? We'll, we'll keep all options open. Uh, but this has obviously been a horrendous year for everybody, myself included. If you want to know how angry I have been, you know, I, I actually had a video go viral of me uh, speaking to our border supervisors in Ventura County uh, where I'm wearing a mask. If you YouTube me in Ventura County, I'm sure you'll find it. It went viral all over the world. And you want to see uh, righteous outrage and anger. Uh, that was it. I didn't even have a, the funniest part of the video. And Matt Lauer actually noticed this first. The funniest part of the video, if you, if you get a chance to look at it, I had thought I had three minutes to talk to this board of supervisors. This was back in June. 
And so I had a prepared text. And they cut us down to two minutes just before I went on. I don't know whether or not they were trying to sabotage us or there were too many people that uh, had decided to speak, what have you. So I I literally have 30 seconds to cut my three-minute speech down to two minutes. So I decide, fuck it. I'm not going to use my script because I can't use the script and cut it down to two minutes. So I just decide to go off, just do, do completely go off on a riff. But the funniest part is, and I don't even know why I did this, in the middle of my riff, I turn the page of my prepared marks, uh, uh, remarks as if I'm reading from the re- prepared remarks, but I'm not. Lauer thought that was hilarious, but that's how, that's how angry I was, how stream of consciousness I was, as I damned them to hell for trying to save all life by destroying any relevant life that there is. And by the way, not even be successful in trying to save all life. So check that out on YouTube. That'll kind of that'll be basically the summary of my year, at least when it comes uh, to COVID and uh, my reaction to it. Uh, as is always, you can uh, keep in touch with me via my Twitter page, which is at Zygmunt Freud. Make sure to check out the last few episodes of the Individual One podcast. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. I'll still be around. I don't know in what form or fashion, uh, but uh, you'll still hear from me, I'm sure. Uh, and you can always contact me uh, via my Twitter page or my email address, which is talktozig at AOL.com. Until the next time, uh, who knows when that'll be. Uh, I hope you have a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. My name is John Ziegler. So long, everybody. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.